my wife and I built a house this year, and we love it. It's been super fun to move into this dream that we've had now for a long time. We moved home from Arizona a couple of years ago now, and we immediately started the project, and it took about a year and a half for us to finally move in. We moved in uh, this past May, and it's a dream. I'll tell you what, though, in pockets, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. If anyone here has ever uh, tackled trying to build their own home, or has a friend, that, you know, someone that did, I mean, it is tough work. It stretched us to our max in every area of our life. And we finally got to move in, and we just love it. It's a dream now to live in. And we've got like windows that face west. We can see the trees and the, and the sunset. It's just really sweet. I've got some sweat equity in this house. My general contractor, he was here the first service, Dennis Whitaker. Give him a round of applause. He, uh, he was the brains behind the project. He's like, Luke, if you want to save some money, just do some work yourself. And I'm like, cha-ching. I'll just do this house on my own, right? And I had no idea what I was doing. So, you know, I took on a couple of these projects. Like, I sanded and finished the wood floors, and now they've got splinters. And, like, you know, I was in charge of laying the concrete countertops with my friends, inspired by the concrete countertops that we have here. And they look okay. And (laughs) Justin Cruzy helped me with that, so that was a dig at Justin. Just kidding. You were the brains behind that, brother. And I've got a lot of sweat equity in this place, and we just... Love it. Everything about it. Except there's this, mm, how do I say this? Well, it's the blue door that leads to nowhere. It's the blue door that's open that leads to nowhere. So my wife and I, when she found the plans online for this house, we were all excited and thrilled. Like, this is exactly what we want. We want to raise a family here. We want to use it as a platform for ministry. This is perfect. And it didn't come with a garage as part of the plans. And we were okay with that. We said, we'll just perceive the garage to be phase two. Although that was extremely helpful for our finances, that was not helpful for my imagination. Because I began to go crazy for the blue door that led to nowhere. I began to dream and meditate, the amount of mental space and mental energy that I committed to this dream garage was laughable. I mean, I would like think about it on, when I'm driving to work, and I'm like, I'm going to go hang out with teenagers, but that garage, right? And I'm like, I'm like thinking about it all the time, and I'm like, okay, maybe someday I'm, I'm doing numbers. I'm like, well, honey, if, you know, this over here and that over here, if this, you know, if we can sell the dogs, maybe we can buy the garage, like something like that. And she's like, I'm not selling the dogs. I'm like, daggum it. And so, like, it's just, it was one of those things, like, the garage has to wait. And and that's okay. That's totally, totally okay. But then the unthinkable happens. My neighbor, God bless my neighbor. I love them. They already have a garage attached to their house. But then they built a second garage right behind us and it's just there and I can see it through the bay window and I'm like that's a beautiful garage and I slipped into a black abyss of obsession about a garage 
I mean, I'm spending late nights on YouTube doing like DIY garage builds. And I'm like, I can do this. And so I'm like enlisting my brother-in-law, Kyle, who can build and do anything. I'm like, hey, Kyle, you think your wife would up? you know, let you come over for a week over Christmas break and help me build a garage? He's like, uh, maybe, man. Like, I can ask her. I'm like, okay, ask her. And then my wife's like, Luke, you can't build a garage. I'm like, I know, but I want to. And so, like, I shopped for garage kits on Menards.com. Like, I'm pretty sure a Menards kit, someone would drive by and the thing would fall down. Like the wind, there goes the kit, right? And I slipped into obsession. I had spent a disproportionate amount of time dreaming and meditating and fantasizing on what kind of garage could house my 2006 Chevy Avalanche (laughs) and house it from the rain This is a very pressing Western issue, right? We need to house our cars. And although this is pretty humorous and is intended to be, it hit me. Church, I am here to confess to you this morning that I have been coveting. I have been coveting. I have been coveting this garage because of the blue door that led to nowhere, and I know that I am not alone. And I know this for a couple of reasons. And at the fear of sounding sexist, let me qualify that most of the time. Guys, we tend to covet toys that end up in the garage, maybe the basement. Ladies, it kind of seems like the covet is for appearances, whether it's the, you know, the external clothing appearance or maybe the appearance of the interior of your home or something like this. I know this because there is a revolutionary piece of technology that has changed our world that is also really easy to make fun of. It's called Pinterest. Pinterest! Now, I don't know many guys who have Pinterest, although Josh Hoosman does. Sorry, Josh, that, was, that joke was at your expense. I intended it to be right. So I look, I'm looking through Pinterest, and my wife's got a couple of boards dedicated to me, which is very honoring. I'm looking through Pinterest, and I'm like, yeah, there is some cool guy stuff on here. There's like motorcycles, there's cars, there's like grill stuff. I'm like, yeah, it's shiny, it's expensive. I'll just put a pin in that, right? Maybe for later. Dudes, I know that I am not the only one here that grew up watching Home Improvement. Anybody? Anybody? Tim, the tool man, Taylor, someone do the grunt. Somebody. Anybody. Thank you. Thank you. You are the best at this. Okay, so, all right, guys, here's a garage. Here's kind of like the sports garage, right? So you've got the Colts thing, the TV, you've got, you know, Go Cubs, right? You've got the lockers. You're like, that is where... I would house my guys' nights, and I just, that's my gig. I'd pin that. That's what I'd pin. Or maybe you're a little more like me. You like things that are fast or require gasoline. It's more like the car and the motorcycle, right? And you're just like, I like, you know, machines, and that's kind of my, my gig. And we're all like Tim the Toolman Taylor somewhere in there, right? Now, ladies, again, the fear of being sexist, most of the time, ladies, it tends to be, and I asked Megan Millinger about this, and she said yes. You know, the appearances, the fall attire, right? The jeans and the sweater and the wedges, booties, what? the shoes. Uh, 
And then the other stuff that I know is necessary, but I just don't know what it is. It just ends up in a purse, and I know it's critical. But and there, Or maybe you're more like, I'm more into the interior of my home. I kind of have like a, a thing for my house. You've got the rafters, the shiplap. I know what shiplap is, right? The chandeliers, it's all good. It's all cool. It's all stuff worth pinning. And that's the crazy thing, is that we pin it because we can't afford it. <laughs> We're like, maybe someday I'll just pin that for later. You know, when I win the lottery, I'll do all those things I pinned. And that's totally the way Pinterest operates. It's a community of coveting. It's hilarious. Now, I say that with some sarcasm because it actually is very helpful in organizing future ideas. So hear me when I say that. But, but I think, I mean, I think that this is an issue that the church does not address on a consistent basis in any way. And God's word has a lot to say about it. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't wrestle with some of this stuff, some of these questions about coveting. My goal this morning and the remainder of our time is for you to ask yourself a self-evaluation here, right? I want us to ask ourselves, do I covet? Do I covet? And this is not something that's new to humanity. I mean, Mark Twain says this in a quote from um, The Adventures of Tom Sawyers. I think that quote is up there somewhere, the Mark Twain quote. Do we have that? Maybe, maybe. Here it is. In order to make a man a boy or boy covet a thing, it is only necessary to make that thing difficult to obtain. Right? It's, it's tempting because it's difficult to obtain, and that's the nature of Pinterest, putting a pin in it for later. And a lot of this stuff is like external things, and it's, it's humorous, but that question remains the theme of this morning. Do I covet? We better define what it is I mean by coveting. The traditional uh, word, the Hebrew transliteration is pronounced ka-mod. It kind of evokes the rapacious nature of like a coyote going after a rabbit. It's like this like clawing, have to obtain, must acquire, will do anything to get it, sensation or mentality. The direct meaning of the word carries the idea of lust. Ironically, the, the word itself speaks to taking delight in something, but in the wrong way. And that's the nature of coveting, that kamad, that rapacious, like, gotta have it, we'll do anything to acquire it. So we're going to define coveting this way this morning, church. Coveting is wanting what I do not have externally. And coveting is wanting to be someone that I am not internally. So we have a dualistic definition, the external expression of coveting this, I gotta have the, the, what my neighbor's got, I gotta have that thing or that vacation or that whatever is next. And then the interior is like, I wanna be who I'm not. I wanna be them. I wanna be them. I read in a magazine just a few weeks ago that more, um, more young girls wanna be like Kim Kardashian than any other uh, woman on the planet. 
It's like this, I want to be someone who I'm not. I want to have something that I do not have. What does this have to do with true religion and James chapter 4? <laughs> everything. Absolutely everything. This is precisely what James is calling out in the church in Jerusalem. Actually, the diaspora, which is the scattered Messianic Jews, the, the new Christians that were expelled from Judea, were all kind of all over the place. The diaspora just means that they're not in their homeland. And James is identifying a trend among those scattered Christians and the Messianic Jews or the Christians that were in Jerusalem at the church that James led. And he notices something about them. What's he say? I think before we discover what James is really trying to communicate, we need to address a question that I even asked myself when I was preparing for the morning. And I know that a lot of you are asking this right now too. So then when does healthy desire become coveting? When does a healthy desire become a covetous desire? What's the threshold? James has got some opinions on it. I'm going to burn through this, so please have your, your eyes on the screen. James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You don't just people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Ah, oh, James, you're killing me, man. Like, James is that friend that we all have that's committed to telling the truth, has no filter, and doesn't care if what he says hurts your feelings. That's James. He, he, has, he takes into no account, he has no regard for the way that this might make someone feel. He just says it how he sees it. You're either going to love James or hate James in this, in this passage. The reality is we probably all actually have a James in our life, or we need one, one of the two, right? And if we have one in our life, we've got to listen to them more often. He's just kind of saying it how he sees it. But the beautiful thing, the most incredible thing that James is doing in this passage is what scholastic method and scholars call the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. James right now is evoking and bringing back and drawing his principles and ideas from the Old Testament. That's what he's drawing from. James, half-brother Jesus, leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's pulling this principle from the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 17. It's pretty straightforward. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the 10th and final commandment. This is when Moses went to the, Mount, went to the top of Mount Sinai, met with God, and received the 10 commandments. Like, don't miss this connection. James is using scripture to make his point. Think linearly here for a moment. This is, if you don't hear anything this morning, don't miss this. If this is the first commandment, and this is the 10th commandment, remember we're thinking linearly here. The first four or so are about loving God. 
This, the second six through ten are about loving neighbor. Okay? So the, the question of why we should not covet, it's predicated on the reality that we cannot love neighbor and covet neighbor at the same time. That's what James is evoking. We do not possess the spiritual fortitude that is required to love neighbor and covet neighbor. They do not coexist. They cannot coexist. You will either love your neighbor or you will covet your neighbor. There's no in-between. And he's using scripture, he's using Exodus 20:17 to make that point. Man, it's like, this is what Jesus got so riled up about. This is why Jesus was just like so like committed to making this clear to his disciples and calling out the Pharisees' uh, inconsistencies. Matthew 22, 36 through 40 make this point. Some guy asks Jesus, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is synthesizing. He is summing up the law in two commands. Love God. Love your neighbor. And James is saying, you can't love your neighbor if you covet them. You just can't. It's impossible. So let's answer the question, when does healthy desire become coveting? When does normal wants, normal desires become covetous desires? I think James is is bringing out a solution here. I think in a contemporary era, we can understand this to mean healthy desires become covetous desires when they fail to include love for God and neighbor. Healthy desires become covetous desires when they fail to include love for God and neighbor. It's a heart issue. It always is. In Scripture, it's always about the heart. It's always about our intent. It's always about what's going on in here. And only you and God can determine the fine lines of what that means. Healthy desires become covetous desires when they fail to include love for God and neighbor. And that's going to take on even more questions, right? So why shouldn't Christians covet? Well, we already established that we can't love God, or excuse me, can't love our neighbor and covet them simultaneously. You see, I think that James is redefining coveting for the diaspora, the scattered Christians. He's basically saying this. He adds to the definition, coveting is wanting something that I do not have more than I want God. Covenant is wanting to become someone that I am not more than I want God. And this elicits a very precise and explicit response from God. We need to take that into consideration for a moment. When we covet our neighbor or covet their assets or covet their life, how does God respond to that? Well, James offers up, a thought on that in 5 and 6. This is what James says. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God 
is jealous. Has anyone really, I hadn't, I had not meditated on the reality that my God and King is jealous. He's jealous, not because he is insecure, but because he is worthy, 100% worthy of 100% of our devotion to him. He has a heart full of love for us individually and for us corporately. And he's jealous when we channel all of this passion and laser focus and mental strength to things that do not satisfy, that do not fill the way that he does. Dudes, let me talk to the guys for a second. Gentlemen, are you like me? Do you scheme late at night on YouTube trying to figure out how you can build that garage? Maybe you're scheming right now how can I get that next vacation? How can I do the house renovation? How can I get that new car? What's it going to take for me to get that raise and that promotion? What's it going to take? And the scheming and the obsession and the disproportional amount of time spent on it all the while ignoring God. It is a blue door that leads to nowhere. God is jealous. He's jealous of the amount of passion we've directed in the wrong direction. Ladies, this is a little bit more difficult for me. Ladies, do you spend a disproportionate amount of time perfecting your outer appearance, spending money on things you do not have to do so, or perfecting the interior of your home's appearance, or your children's appearance, all the while ignoring God, it's a blue door that leads to nowhere. God is jealous. He's jealous of that intentional, laser-focused channeling of energy and passion and strength spent on a blue door obsession. He's jealous. Isn't that wild that we have a loving God who is jealous over us. I mean, it's just crazy. My garage, someday that I don't have yet, is not jealous over me. The things that we pin on pinches aren't jealous over us. But our God is. Our God is. And it's just, it's incredible. And ladies, I want to add a little nugget to you just for a second. This is just for you. In a culture where society places the premium on your external appearance. God places the premium on you as a person, as an individual. And it is your passion and your gentleness and your tenderness. It is your intellect that makes you so irresistible. And the external appearance is extra. It's extra. And God's approval ratings of you and for you are absolutely off the charts. And, and you know what, dudes? It's the, it's the same thing for us, right? We live in a culture and a society that we find our value and our worth found in our production. What can I produce for my family? What can I bring in for my family? What can I do in my workplace? What, can I, what kind of, um, of new endeavor and projects can I take on in my work? I am only as good as what I can produce. And the enemy's like, got him. No. No, God's approval ratings for us too are off the charts. They are. They absolutely are. 
So that's the problem. <laughs> Coveting is a sneaky, sneaky issue. It is very easy to not talk about. It's very easy to miss, uh, especially as Western people. Uh, we, you know, World War II champions back to back. We don't surrender anything. We work really hard for everything. That's just kind of indoctrinated into our culture and it's made its way into our spiritual life. And I want to offer up some options for solutions based on what James is saying here. James says this, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves with the Lord and he will exalt you. Well, uh, I hear three distinct calls to action here. I hear submit, resist, and draw near. Let's talk about all three. Submit. What does submit really mean? This is what submit looks like. Submit says, and this is to my VIP first-time guests in the room, right? My, my visitors, my guests, you're here. You, you wish you hadn't come now because some guy's yelling at you about coveting. And this is what submission looks like. You find your white flag, and you say, God, I give up. I wave my white flag of surrender. I didn't want to be in control of my life like I thought I did. I cannot govern over myself like I thought I should. Lord, I need someone to be in control of me for me. That is what submission looks like. Waving the white flag, saying, I am actually not compelled to build my own empire. I simply want someone else to be in control. That is submission. And that is a totally, that's totally an appropriate response. If, if any of my friends out here right now are first-time visitors or guests or a friend of a friend, you are the VIP in the room. We started this church just for you. And maybe God is saying that to you this morning. Keep your eyes and your ears open. How about this next call to action? Resist. What's it mean to resist? Now I'm kind of speaking to my, my friends who have walked with Jesus for some time now. The enemy is so committed to destroying your life. He hates us individually and hates us corporately and will stop at nothing to deceive you. The problem is with, with the enemy, with Satan, he is supernatural, but he is not divine. It's kind of like the whole like angel on this shoulder, devil on this shoulder, so like it's like an even playing field. But it's not. He's already lost. He's just not dead yet. But one day our king will kill him. And he will be dead. And this won't be an issue anymore. But until then, what he's doing is he's lying. He's telling us lies. He's making these whispers in our ears. And he's going above and beyond to try to disrupt and discourage us at any level. He'll take anything at his disposal to do so. Anything. Here's the goal for a Christian to resist. Uh, no, not today, enemy. Not, not today. You don't have place or power here like I thought you did. Take a hike. God, widen the gap between the enemy's persuasions and myself, please. Just get him out of here. You have the power to claim that. Speak it into existence. And every single time the enemy tries to tell you something that is uh, exploiting a deficiency in your life, tell him to get the heck out of there and find something in God's word to replace that lie with. Every lie the enemy sends our directions the word has an appropriate response to. And the word has a truth that we can supplant with that lie. 
We need to be creatures of the word. We need to be people of God's word. Consistently enjoying it and delighting it and reading and taking in and asking questions and letting it sanctify us. How about this final one? Draw near. What's it, what's it mean to draw near? James actually has some thoughts on this. James says draw near is cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. All Old Testament language for repentance. That's what James is doing right there. He's again drawing Old Testament language out and saying, have a change of heart. Have a change of mind. Change your mind about what you're doing here. You've been channeling all this energy towards everything but God. You've been putting all of your eggs in the production basket, in the appearance basket, in the toy basket, all the while ignoring God. Have a change of mind. Have a change of heart. Now, church, can you imagine what would happen if the body of Christ could figure out how to stop coveting? We would see in Jesus' name a culture that is unleashed from coveting. And all of a sudden, in my opinion, I think that we are going to see a culture of complimenting. Of complimenting. Because let's be honest, when your neighbor gets that new car and that new house renovation, all you really want to do is keep up with the Joneses. I know that I do. Maybe it's just because I'm so insecure or, or whatever. But here's what I think James is suggesting. And this is maybe a contemporary application, right? Your neighbor drives home, new Porsche, right? Drives into the, into the driveway, house renovation. You're taking out your trash. Compliment, don't covet compliment. Don't covet. Your coworker gets the raise, gets the promotion. Compliment. Don't covet. Your sister's hair is like on point and yours is like on fire, right? Compliment. Don't covet. Your friend has the relationship that you don't have. Compliment. Don't covet. Teenagers, I see, I see where you're at, teenagers. Like, this is, this is so your world too. And it's always based on popularity or, or clothes or material possessions. Like, the next time you're confronted with that compliment, don't covet. I just went fishing in July up in Canada and caught 35 fish. I was out, I was so excited. Then my brother goes up in September, catches 17 and a half fish per day for six days. It's about 107 fish. <sighs> compliment. Don't covet. It's very, 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 very sneaky. And Exodus 20.17 is very precise on what it means to not covet neighbor. Don't covet their wealth or assets, and don't covet the persons within that household. You notice something about your friend's spouse? Appropriately compliment. Don't covet. And we will see God unleash a culture of complimenting because we cannot love our neighbor and covet them simultaneously.